The title of my message uh, found in the scriptures is Do Not Deprive One Another. That's not one of those one another's that you often hear about in the New Testament. Uh, you know, we've got all these one another's that we love to repeat sometimes, you know, love one another, serve one another, pray for one another. Do not deprive one another is not one that comes up often in that list, but it is, necess- it is, it is still uh, a very important one, as the Apostle Paul wants to direct our attention to this morning. So we're continuing in our series in uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, at least um, the first one included in the scriptures. We know that there was at least one letter written by Paul to the Corinthians before this letter, because uh, even in verse 1, he says here in our text, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we know that there had been some correspondence, and Paul had talked about uh, his response to them earlier. Um, But for whatever reason, that letter wasn't preserved by the Lord as part of his inspired New Testament. Uh, Most scholars think there were actually four letters that the Apostle Paul penned to the Corinthians. Only two of them are included as inspired scripture for us. It's what we need. And uh, we begin chapter 7 this morning. So I'm not quite halfway through. Uh, There are 16 chapters in this letter, but uh, we're making our way through. Uh, And let me be clear, this chapter uh, is a long chapter, uh, but it is also a very open discussion of a very intimate and delicate subject. So uh, get ready. Uh, And I'll do my best to prevent us all from blushing um, as we work through the material. And we need to work through the material. Um, Why? Your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors... The people sitting next to you are being bombarded day after day after day on video screens, through the internet, social media, from friends, from peers, with a very different picture of what sex and sexuality looks like than from how the Bible teaches. And in this very specific moment in our culture, And in our country's history, we desperately need to hear clear Bible teaching on sexuality from the Word of God. Don't we? We desperately need to hear a clear voice giving us wholesome direction from the Bible. Now, if you look at the end of verse 5 in our text today, you'll see the Apostle Paul realizes that at Corinth, this whole area of sexuality was a major battleground in their lives. And it's a major battleground in the spiritual war against us today too, isn't it? Um, And that's why we need the Word of God to speak to us on this subject. Now after looking at part of chapter 5 and then the second half of chapter 6, we've dealt with sexual immorality from the perspective of all that is distorted and perverted, Um, the negative side of it. Uh, Now, Paul in chapter 7 turns to give us a positive picture of sexuality. The beauty of God's design for sex. Now remember last week at the end of chapter 6, Paul addressed the problem of some of these folks in Corinth who who were part of that church there and their view of sexuality was so liberal that they were actually visiting temple prostitutes and thought it was okay. 
And so there was this faction in the church at Corinth. You remember their, their slogan? It was, all things are lawful to me. Remember? We talked about that last week. Anything goes. And, of course, we understand why they got to that position from the Greek view of the body and the difference between the body and the spirit. But that's not how the Scripture teaches, right? The body is made for the Lord, we learned, as well as the soul. But now there seems to have been another group who, who maybe reacted to the first group and, and overreacted, probably. And, and there seems they also have a slogan. You see it in verse 1. Uh, it's, the one, it's what's in quotes here in verse 1. They seem to have swung all the way to the other side of the pendulum, the opposite extreme. So their motto is not anything goes. Their motto is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Just don't do it. It's, it's not a very catchy slogan. It, it wouldn't be very popular, I can't imagine. Um, but that summarized the teaching of this, this group of people in the church of Corinth. So there's, there's two extremes we see. There, on the one side, there's that careless sexual promiscuity. All things are lawful. On the other side, you've got this kind of narrow-minded opposition towards sex altogether. They saw it as dirty, unworthy of a Christian. Just avoid it. Just be celibate. But taken together, chapter 6 and chapter 7 present us with a Christian vision of human sexuality that actually defies both of these extremes. And it models for us instead, it paints for us a beautiful picture of sexual union in Christian marriage that, that affirms sex, even celebrates sex, but at the same time, while keeping it in its God-given boundaries. And that, brothers and sisters, is a message that could not be more needed in the days in which we live. So the Holy Spirit, through the writing of the Apostle Paul here, is going to give us at least three ways, I think, to think about sex in these verses this morning that I think we badly need to understand. And we better have a command of this subject as Christians in the world in which we live. And I, I mentioned on, on my Facebook post yesterday, but uh, I know this section is about married people, all right? And I know we've got a bunch of folks here that aren't married. Um, and that's okay. Just hang on. Paul is going to get to you, okay? Chapter 7 covers everybody, Okay? Whatever station in life you're in, it's in chapter 7. So just hang on. We'll get to you in the weeks ahead. But this morning, we start off thinking about marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. So notice, first of all, uh, one way to think. The first way I think that Paul wants us to notice about how to think about sex is that Christian sex is a shield. Christian sex is a shield. Verses 1 and 2. Think about it as a shield. Now, the Corinthian believers were situated, you remember, in the middle of a very self-indulgent society. Not unlike our own in many respects. And some of them, not unlike us, some of us, find it extremely hard to resist that anything-goes, sexually permissive culture. It's everywhere. But there were others who overreacted, as I mentioned, and the pendulum swung for them 
to the opposite side, and they're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, period. No sex. We're Christians. That's the path of godliness. That was their point of view. And just to be clear, if you look down at our passage here, down to verse 7 and following, uh, which Pastor Greg will get into next week, if you look ahead just a little, Paul's going to argue that that there is a place for celibacy. There is a place for singleness. Uh, and, And indeed, that God gives that ability to some people. Some people, not all people. In fact, we might even argue not most people. But going back in verse 2 here, and then again in verse 5, Paul is very clear that if you attempt celibacy, no sex, without this ability, without the calling of God, the giftedness of God to help you to embrace this kind of a single life, you are actually opening yourself up to temptation and to sin. Look at verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Look down at verse 5. This is for married couples. Paul says, you are not to neglect, not to deprive one another, except for perhaps a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, etc. And then you come back together. Why? Look at the end of the verse. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So to married people, neglecting sexual intercourse within marriage is actually exposing yourself to all sorts of possible temptation. And Paul is saying that a major defense, a shield given by God against sexual sin is sex within your marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have sex all the time in your marriage, someone's not going to be tempted and go off into sexual sin. There's no guarantee of that. But it says it will help you. It will defend you. It will provide a shield. Notice the strong affirmation here of the place of marriage in the face of the Corinthian sexual immorality. Look at verse 2 again. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. A lifelong union of one man, one woman in marriage, Paul says. This is the only appropriate context for sexual intimacy. The only one. And within that context, God has designed... That sexual intimacy should strengthen and protect each partner from the temptations of the devil who twists and distorts sex into something selfish and perverse and dangerous and shameful. Now let's face it. If you were going to look around in our culture today, And you were going to say, what is the greatest battlefield, the greatest spiritual battlefield of our day? You could make an argument for sex. It is one of Satan's favorite avenues of attack, has been all through biblical history. And he seems to have a very high success rate in trapping lots of people in this, even those who profess to follow Jesus, right? And so Paul is saying 
that a healthy sexual intimacy in marriage is a shield designed by God against Satan's attack. So that's the first thing that we need to see here. Sex can be a shield, is designed to be a shield. A healthy sex life within a loving Christian marriage is part of a Christian's armor in the spiritual war against the enemy of our souls, a battle in which we are engaged every single day. Notice that first, Christian sex is a shield. Notice secondly, Christian sex is selfless. Verses 3 to the beginning of verse 5. Let's start off by looking at verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Stop there for just a moment. Now, it's critically important as we tackle these verses to notice both sides of Paul's teaching. If we fail to do that, we will twist his message very badly and even dangerously. When we understand what Paul is saying here, we will see that it is quite radical of a concept, especially in the first century context in which Paul was writing. Now notice, first in verse 3, Paul addresses husbands about the conjugal rights of the wife. Now that would fly straight in the face of Jewish tradition, of the Greco-Roman culture in which they lived, because in those days the the husband's rights were above the wife's every single time. I mean, in the Jewish culture, we've been through this before in other passages of Scripture, if, if a wife burned the toast in the morning, the husband could divorce her. I mean, it was that petty. The husband had all authority over every trivial matter when it came to the wife, to the woman. And Paul doesn't, he flies right in the, in the face of that. He starts by affirming the woman's rights. And he commands husbands to respect those rights, doesn't he? Look at the text. And then he says the same applies for the wife regarding her husband. Each is to understand that the other has rights in this whole area. Now, um, this, this uh, you know, a lot of people look back at the New Testament and they read things about homosexuality They read things about gender. They read things about sexuality. They read things about wives submitting to their husbands and all this kind of stuff, right? And this is what people say today about the Apostle Paul. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul lived in a very patriarchal time. And he just didn't understand. You know, he was just limited by his culture and his experience. And we're much more enlightened today thousands of years later, and we're all about equality. Friends, if you look at these verses right here in 1 Corinthians 7, I would say that Paul was all about equality right here. There is no smack of patriarchalism in this text. It is husbands and wives, wives and husbands, husbands and wives, very equally, very fair-handed, 
through this whole text. That is very important to understand. So he places the obligation on us to think of the rights of our spouse rather than to stand on our own rights and make demands of the other. Now, I've, I've experienced this in marriage counseling where a husband isn't getting much for whatever reason in his marriage. And he says to me, tell my wife what her duty is. You know what happens when a partner demands his or her rights at the expense of the other? Pain, grief, tension, distance. It ruins the relationship. Paul gives absolutely no room for that kind of behavior here. Instead, he is saying our attitude should be one of selfless service. Christian sex is selfless. We are to serve our partner, to give to them for their sake. Never to demand what, they, what we believe they owe us. And so he says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if we left it right there, again, we'd be opening up for the possibilities of all kinds of abuse, wouldn't we? But Paul immediately flips it. Do you see it? The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, again, Paul did live in a, very, in a largely patriarchal society where women were considered second-class citizens. And when Paul makes that kind of a statement in this text in the first century, that is an amazing statement. And it is countercultural. Neither partner has absolute authority over themselves. Each has a claim upon the other. Why? So that love in the bonds of marriage, love can bring each partner to a place of selflessness. Seeking what is best for their spouse. Paul even says at the beginning of verse 5, do not deprive one another. The word he uses there, deprive, is interesting. You could translate it. In other translations, translate it, do not defraud one another. He's thinking of sexual intimacy in a marriage as a debt, as something that is owed to one another. It's a sacred obligation designed by God for the good of both partners in marriage. In other words, Paul is teaching us here that sex within marriage is a normal Christian duty. And I know that may take all the romance out of it right there. But the way that he speaks about this, follow me here, the way that he speaks about this, there's something deeply Christ-like here when we stop and meditate on this. In this pattern of service and selflessness that Paul is describing, Christ gave himself for his bride. 
gave himself up for her. That is how he loves his bride. He doesn't, Jesus didn't stand on his rights and say, you're not going to put me on that cross. Are you kidding me? I created you. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. That's not what Jesus did, is it? He voluntarily gave himself up. Not to the Romans. For us. He gave himself up for us. For his bride. It's a beautiful picture. You know, the devil tempted Jesus. Do you remember? He tempted him exactly on this point. He took him to the highest point of the temple, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. And he said, throw yourself down, Jesus. After all, the scripture says, you know, God will command his angels to, to bear you up in their hands so that your foot won't strike a stone. So go on, Jesus. Stand on your rights. And go ahead and just jump off. Show the whole world who you really are. Jesus didn't stand on his rights. He surrendered them. He submitted to God. He rebuked the devil. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That was his response. And that was his pattern throughout his earthly ministry. He would surrender his rights. The way Paul put it in Philippians 2.7, he took the form of a servant, of a slave, doulos, the, the bond slave, the lowest rank on the totem pole. Jesus took that form. Why? For the sake of the church. For the sake of you. He emptied himself. Paul is saying, there's a gospel pattern here. Do you see it? Even within the sexual union, even within marriage of selflessness for the good of the other, surrendering our rights for the good of the other, not demanding our rights. Sex is a beautiful thing. It is part of God's design. And it even pictures the gospel itself. It is a selfless and then notice thirdly, Christian sex is secondary. The second part of verse 5 and then verse 6. In great contrast to our culture, he, he says that there's something even more important than sex and self-pleasure. What? Is it possible? There's something more important than my own pleasure? How could this be? Look at verse 5 again. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In our sexually broken world, brothers and sisters, many of us are carrying deep scars. Some of us come into marriage with all kinds of baggage all kinds of emotional baggage that we're carrying, all kinds of vulnerabilities, all sorts of wounds, all sorts of fears. Sometimes our marriages become messy because of our sins and our failure to live according to God's pattern. And, and given all the complexities of Christian marriage, there are times, Paul says, when sexual intimacy in a marriage may not be appropriate 
for a season. Now, anyone who takes um, Paul's teaching here in these six verses as a license to demand what should be given as an act of selfless service is distorting the Scriptures in dangerous ways. There's no place for the kind of abusive demands that sometimes find their way even into Christian marriages. But there is ne- there's, no, there's no place either in a Christian marriage for any kind of manipulative withholding of sex for selfish or spiteful reasons that also sometimes finds its place into Christian marriages. Do not deprive one another. That's the normal pattern of a healthy, loving marriage. But Paul has made one exception here, hasn't he? You see it in the text. It's fascinating. It's actually very challenging. He says a couple may break off their intimacy for a season by mutual agreement. Do you see that? In order to focus in a sustained way on prayer. The word translated in our ESV Bibles here, a limited time, has the idea of a season of special significance with limits to it. There's some unusual circumstance of special seriousness that is calling the husband and wife to a sustained, prolonged season of focused prayerfulness. You ever been in one of those spots? I think what Paul has in mind here is similar to what we would say is a fast in the New Testament. Like a fast from food. When we fast... We are saying to God, just as food is necessary for my body's nourishment, you are even more necessary for my soul. I need you right now more than daily bread. And I think that's what we're saying. And so we give up food for a specific season to pray, to cry out to the Lord, to answer us for something urgent, specific, burden, lay it on our heart, and to draw near to us. And in the same way, I think Paul is suggesting here that sexual intimacy that's normally normal, (laughs) It's, it's necessary and normal in Christian marriages, it can be set aside for a time, So that the couple may pray together as a way of saying, even though we need each other, we need you, Lord, more and right now, urgently. But however you understand what he's saying here, this much at least is clear. The Apostle Paul expects Christian couples to pray together, doesn't he? He expects them to understand that there is a higher claim on their marriage by the Lord that may at times interrupt their regular routine and take a higher priority than even their own sexual needs. The Lord Jesus has a claim on your marriage. Your marriage is for Him. So Christian husbands and wives, do you pray? with one another? 
Do you find ways in which to honor, to give higher honor, higher priority to the Lord Jesus? If a non-Christian could spy on your house, you know, put one of those little cameras up on the corner of your wall, you know, and, and, and they just watch you. Now, now, I'm not talking about the bedroom, okay? If they could just watch your daily lives, watch you go around your house, watch how you live, watch your behavior, could they observe from the way that you behave, from the rhythms of your life, that you are children of God, that Jesus Christ has first claim on above everything else? Is your marriage a distinctively Christian marriage? Distinctively Christian Or if they looked in on your life, would it look like every other marriage that they know in the lost world? Does Jesus Christ reign as Lord between you and your spouse and over you and your marriage and in your home? There are situations, Paul is saying, when sexual intimacy can be set aside, when it becomes secondary, when it takes a back seat. But notice, even then the physical separation is not to be permanent. Our enemy is looking for any and every opportunity to undermine and disrupt and shatter your marriage. Don't pretend to be so spiritual that you can neglect sex with your spouse. Don't use your Christian piety, your your devotion to practicing your religion as a way to cover deeper problems in your marriage that you need help with. Instead of marital sex being some sort of distraction from godliness, Paul is in fact teaching us here, isn't he, that sexual union in marriage is normally a part of Christian worship that's pleasing to God, that's beautiful in his sight, It's the way it's designed. So, verse 5, come together. Come together again. Why? That Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And notice that this qualified abstinence is not required. It's not commanded. Look at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Some take the word this to refer to what's coming up in verse 7 and following about about singleness and celibacy. But the best understanding of the language here, I think, points us back to verse 5. So Paul is saying, if a couple wishes to refrain from sex for this reason, as he's laid it out, that's fine. But he is not saying it's necessary. He says, it's a concession. It's an interesting word too. I don't have time to get into it right now. But because Paul adds this extra thought in verse 6 to what he's already said, it may be even showing a reluctant concession. Like, I'm not sure that I even like you to abstain at all. But you can for this reason. It's a concession. It's so important that sex be normal in a Christian marriage, not the exception. But when needed, it can take a back seat.
to urgent prayer. That's the message of Paul for us this morning. I'll ask the praise team to come up, return for our final song here in a minute. While they're coming, let me give you just a few thoughts in conclusion here. I am convinced, we've been talking all summer and for the last year about how to emphasize evangelism, how to grow a culture of evangelism in our church, that we're, we're speaking for Christ more regularly, we're, we're talking to people about the Lord more regularly, we're getting over our, our shyness and our, our, our apprehension, and we're, we're trying to, in, to engender boldness and grow boldness and, uh, and a desire to see people saved within our church family. I am convinced one of the best witnesses that we can offer our society with all of its sexual chaos, with all of its sexual confusion, one of the best ways that we can show that, the best witnesses in our society, is to put on public display humble, gospel-shaped, tender, lifelong, intimate Christian marriages. Where there are no controlling abusive demands where there is no belittling manipulation but where there is joyful intimacy where there is sexual wholeness which in Paul's mind is part of sexual holiness pleasing in the sight of God honoring to him the world you know what the world thinks about us you know what the world thinks about us. You Christians are a bunch of sexually repressed, miserable people, and you're obsessed with the sex that you're not allowed to have. That's what they think about us. Sure it is. We need to recover a biblical vision that rejoices in God's wonderful design for the union of one man and one woman in marriage for life and when we begin not only to believe that, but to live that by the grace of God, what a wonderful testimony we will bear. What, how countercultural we will be. How brightly our lights will shine in darkness. What a beautiful thing it will be to see how the gospel reorders our lives and our priorities. So sex is a shield. An important defense against Satan's attacks. Sex within marriage is a selfless service. It's an obligation that we owe our spouses. And it is shaped by the pattern of the gospel where no one stands on their own rights but seeks to serve and care for the other person. And sex in a Christian marriage is secondary at times when necessary, to our urgent Christian worship, our times of urgent prayer with the Lord. May the Lord help us at a time where this is one of the major battlefields where Satan is opposing the people of God. May God give us grace to shine, to shine brightly in this area and to bear witness to the world of what the gospel can do, what Jesus can do when he invites you, as David read, to his marriage feast. And aren't you glad that you're a part of that wonderful marriage?
that will be consummated one day in heaven? Well, just take, uh, let's just take like 20, 30 seconds right now here at the end of our message before we sing. And just, uh, just bow your heads where you are or maybe with your spouse if you're next to a spouse and just ask the Lord's help in this area. This is a, this is a really tough subject uh, for our singles in, in the auditorium. This is a really tough subject for you in, in today's culture. It's a tough subject for our husbands and wives too. And uh, so let's just pray that the Lord will, will have his way in our hearts that we will be dedicated to doing right, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the cost to us personally, and that within marriage that the Lord will help us to live for the Lord and live for our spouse and stop demanding our own way and stop manipulating each other through sex rather than joyously and freely giving it to each other as a way that helps protect us and helps rejoice in God's perfect design. Just take just a few seconds and, and get alone with God, and then we'll stand and we'll sing the old hymn together, Have Thine Own Way, Lord.